Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Hi, Chanel Vella. Do you think people can tell our voices apart? I think so. Hi, I'm Chanel. No, you're not. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dee Dee Dunleavy. I'm Chanel Vella. And this is Dead Bodies. It's a um, a death podcast about dead bodies. Why are we explaining? People know oh, it's episode twelve. Because what now. if someone just out of nowhere like dipped in? When I'm just going to listen to an episode. Get stuff. Go what, to the start. Read right. the bio. Get, get to the know back what we're of the about. Queue. What do you think you're doing? For the regulars, we are here. Skipping now. I'm going to go first because I've just decided I'm going to go first. Oh, okay. Um, we heard last episode that I'd been on a European holiday. Yes. I hate taking photos by myself in front of landmarks. Oh, see, I enjoyed I oh. was watching you. I was st- stalking you on Insta. Yeah, I can't. You're such a pretty person. No, but I pretty, can't. pretty partner. So my boyfriend, who I know I've spoken about murdering in this podcast for the OG listeners. And I looked at his eyes in quite a few photos. <laughs> and it's just this little bit of fear. He legitimately loves me so much it's evil that I think about this. No, he looks so comfortable for me. He's a very good man that I've thought about murdering. Um, And he loves it. He is the Insta boyfriend. Take a photo of of me in front of Sacré-Cœur. Take a photo of me in front of the Eiffel Tower. I'm going to pretend to be gazing into the distance. And (laughs) I'm there, a journo who's on TV solo all the time, and he's like, go and stand in front of that and take a photo and I don't know what to do with my arms. I don't know. I just hate it. So I I like a selfie with other people but I hate a solo photo. Getting onto my story of photographer Walter Shells who was actually terrified by death. He hated death and everything to do with it. Um, He refused to see his mum after she passed away. He wouldn't see her. Now, Going into his 70s, he decided, I'm going to get over this and I'm going to deal with my fear of death. So he did this by starting this project where he decided that he would photograph people before and after they died. I'm totally feeling his vibe because oh. he's me in a, in a few more years. Here we Scared go. of death, don't want to know about death, but then doing something that's all about it. I'm feeling him. Now, I'm going to credit The Guardian who first told his story, I feel, as a journalist. It's responsible journalism to cite who puts these articles out. So he first told The Guardian about what he does. He pretty much, him and his partner, um, started just approaching people in hospitals who were close to death and saying, this is what we want to do. Would you mind if we took a photo of you right now while you're alive and we'll get the hospital to notify us after you die? Fuck off, buddy. And we'll take – no. Okay, what's it? Excuse me. Are you about to die? Could I yeah. take your photo? So he was actually no, surprised no that some people said no, um, but others said yes. And this little duo they formed were always on alert. So they were running to hospitals and places and uh, in the middle of the night to f- – to photograph people that they'd photographed while they were alive. Now, I know I forget sometimes we do a podcast and I do things that you guys can't see. So I'm holding up a photo. Here's one. We'll put all these photos up on our website. Oh, is the one on the side? Mm -hmm. So that's actually Jan Anderson, who Mm -hmm. was 27 
when he died. He was 19 when he discovered With he was... yarn. Yeah, young. Yarn. Oh, yarn? Yarn. Oh, I've got it wrong. I'm all about the pronunciation. You know that by now. Jan. There's a chance for an accent. <laughs> I said Jan. Sort. How bogan <laughs> I. That's Jan Anderson. <laughs> No, Chanel. That's that's yarn. I know people will send us hate, but okay, I got it wrong. People remember my name is Chanel. It's Sharon and Narell in one name. I'm not here for the fancy. Um, He looks just like he. He looks. He looks peaceful. Peaceful. Yeah. Mm. That's amazing. Have these been published somewhere? They're all online. There's a website, and you can find them. Now this one is Almira. She's 17 months old. Oh, it's a baby. Yeah. She had a tumour that was present uh, from the time she was born uh, and it took almost, it took up the space of almost her, her entire brain. Yeah. Um, the doctor said to her, we cannot save your daughter. And she actually has a twin sister who is perfectly healthy. Um, this is this is like um, the memento mori that we talked about in our last yeah. In our feedback that we had about that they used to do in Victorian times. Gee whiz. Yeah. One sunny day, Elmira stops breathing. At least she lived, said her mother. And there's all different age groups. So there's another, there's Clara who's 83 and she actually looks quite peaceful in death as well. She died in a hospice as well. Maria, who was 52. And there's other people that say that they're really happy that he did this because they weren't being heard in death and they weren't their wishes weren't being heard and they weren't they didn't have a voice and they felt that it was giving them a voice i wonder what this then did for him because if he had that huge fear mm. what it then probably just make him his feelings well i think it would make you realize how people embrace death mm. so there's uh, this man who's 52 and he says no one asks me how i feel because they're all shit scared i find it really upsetting the way they desperately avoid the subject talking about all sorts of other things don't they get it i'm going to die that's all i think about every second when i'm on my own mm. and i think that is definitely i know and I, I can't I don't know if this is something I've spoken about, but with the death of my of Nicholas's dad, mm. I have made it a point with him as my partner that I often bring up his dad. I don't yeah. ever want it to be a taboo subject that we don't talk about. Yeah. So if something, you know, I'm not just bringing it up at random at the dinner table going, let's talk about your dad, but if there is a moment where uh, it's appropriate, uh, it might even just be like, oh, you know, well, I think your dad had a ladder or something like that that we could borrow. Or, um, oh, do you remember when you you know, on just on that, do you remember when your dad used to do this and that? And I, I actually really try to normalise it because I don't want it to ever be something we don't talk about. So he's not just forgotten. But isn't that yeah. like what Michael, who talked to us about his sister Jess and her dad, yeah. and he actually said um, he likes talking about her. Yeah. And they it doesn't have to be this weird thing. They don't thing. have to be this, yeah. That's, I mean, I'm still working through that of, of a dead body is not just a dead body. It's mm. a person. It's, yeah. Yeah. So we've got lots of these photos which will pop up on our Facebook and social media so you can have a look at them. I'll also say none of them are ghastly or, you they're know. Not they're, they're not actually. They're actually not. They're actually yeah. quite beautiful. So if you're if you're a little worried about looking at them, they're actually quite nice to look at, but it shows, yeah, people while they're alive and just moments after they died. Yeah, there's something slightly different in the face in that mm. they do look peaceful, yeah. but the fa- because all the muscles in the face have just relaxed. Relaxed. So there's, 
there's like a drop of the jaw and stuff in some yeah, of them. Yeah, kind of just like they're sleeping, but. Yeah. Mm. It's not even like when people pretend to be dead when they're in a movie or a TV show no, or something. You can tell different, that they're not because it? the muscles are all sitting still like Correct. a live person. There's yeah. something slightly different with those. We'll definitely put the links up on our Facebook page. Can I tell you, Chanel, about something that happened back in? I did that noise that the donkey did in um, Shrek, and I don't know why I did it. Okay. Find another way to amuse yourself. <laughs> um, Boulder, Colorado. Yep. In 1954, two uni students were hiking near the Boulder Falls and they found a woman's body laying against the rocks. Um, the police came along and they thought that she'd been there for about a week. And then she couldn't be identified because animals had damaged her face and her fingers. Mm. She had been stripped. The only thing on her body that wasn't part of her was three hairpins in her hair, but her clothes were missing, any jewellery that she might have had on. She had perfect teeth, which is in life is a good thing, but in death it meant she hadn't had any dental work done. Oh. So there were no dental records to help them identify her. There were some distinctive injuries on her body, and that led to a theory about how she died, which I'll get to in a minute. But I've just thought of something. I've never had any dental work done. How will they have? They won't have dental records. See me and my crooked teeth. They'll they'll have a million X-rays of things to look at. I can remember sitting with my mum on the train once, and she looked down at my leg, and there's a tiny little birthmark, the shape of New Zealand. Yeah. And she said, "Oh, I'll remember that if I ever have to identify your body." It's true. Isn't that a nice thing for a mum to say? I've got a mole in my ear. Everyone. Have you? Yep. I can't remember if it's a left or right, but if you find an ear. There's nothing left of me. Can then. Nicholas identify your body? Do I? I don't have to. Or Papa Vella or someone else. Not don't please don't make me. Okay. Carry on. So it was officially determined she died of blunt force trauma, which can pretty much cover mm. a whole bunch of things, couldn't it? So her identity remained a mystery. The story got quite a lot of coverage. Uh, front page news in, in Boulder and in Denver. They called her and remember this is nineteen fifty four, the battered blonde of Boulder Canyon. They always had to have like a a you could not name, say that they? now. No. If I went to my news director and said, we're going to call her a battered blonde of Boulder Canyon. When I was looking at this story, researching this one, there are lots of bits in it. I'm thinking that you as a, a modern day crime reporter are going to pick up on Yes. That. All right. Here's, here's some more for you. The police speculated that she had been pretty and extremely feminine. What do you reckon that meant? Do you reckon that just meant she was curvaceous or something? Yeah, maybe. She was why would pretty. They, why would that have any relevance, her, that she was extremely feminine? They could tell that from her dead body. Mm. Uh, there was so little to go on. This was according to the Boulder County Under Yeah, so little. The they're just making up shit. That's what's <laughs> happened here. Oh, we've got nothing. She's a clean skin. Just go out and say she's pretty and hope people will care. Now, with all unidentified females, as you will well know, they mm-hmm. called them Jane Doe. Yeah. I did actually, just out of interest, look up why we call dead bodies Jane Doe Mm. and John Doe. And it's a really long convoluted explanation. It's actually not even worth going into. It's something to do with land ownership court cases that happened back in the dark ages in England. I had this weird conversation again with Nicholas one time because I was on a Jane Doe story and I was saying to him, thinking he knew what Jane Doe meant, oh, yeah, yeah, we found a Jane Doe. What's Jane Doe? It's Jane Doe. What is it? It's dead body. Why is it Jane Doe? Because that's what you call it. It's Jane Doe. But yep. who's Jane Doe? It went back and forth like yep. that for so long to the point where I was like, I, and then he goes, oh, well, what do you call a man then? I said, John Doe. And, and then he it never was, heard that. No. 
remember my mum telling me that quite early. I think it must have been on a TV oh, show. Don't yeah, don't Google it. It's not worth it. It's really boring. Won't yeah. do it. Um, so she was dubbed Jane Doe. The locals chipped in to give her a good Christian funeral. Uh, she was buried in a cemetery in Columbia. And her grave was marked with a stone, literally a stone, that yep. said Jane Doe, April 1954, age about 20 years. Oh. I found that strangely sad. They didn't even know her exact age. So the authorities in Boulder County thought they knew who killed her. They had their eye on a serial killer called Harvey Glattman. Mm. He's worth a Google if you are interested in serial killers. I don't want to focus too much on him because this is about... Jane Doe. Yep. Um, but Harvey Glattman. Now, nine years earlier, when Harvey Glattman was just a high school student, this was in 1945, a woman was on her way home from the movies and he put a gun to her back. Oh. He took her to an alley, tied her to a telephone pole, he molested her and stole $2 from her. She recognised him from school. She told the police about him. Another two months later, he took a bus to Boulder and he pulled a gun Hold on. Hold on. Yes. She recognised him from school. Yeah, he was only young. He was still a teenager. What an idiot. I know. Oh, he's not smart. Yeah. So he's now got this other woman, a young mother. She was heading home from a movie, same thing. Uh, He tied her up, he gagged her, then he watched her struggle to free herself. Mm. Um, And this relates back, and by all means, go and Google him, Harvey Glattman. He had this whole fixation with bondage and his whole sexual fetish that he had himself with being tied up and tying strings around his – So he held her all night, but then he took her back to Boulder. He hailed a cab and told the driver to take her home, so he released her. He was charged with assaulting two other women. One police report called the charges Girl Trouble. What? How does that compare to your modern-day police reporting, Chanel? What do you mean, girl trouble? He served eight months in jail. Now, when he got out, his mother um, moved him to New York. She took him out of state and oh, the old ship him off to somewhere new oh. where no one knows his name and he'll be a better person. Oh, he'll, he's a fresh person called Harvey yeah. Clapp and he's never done anything wrong in his whole life. Yeah. She, according to mum, mum's oh. just oblivious, isn't she? Well, he soon wound up in jail there. Now... The um, eventually, and you can read this. His um, the authorities decided that his known crimes represented only a very small part of his offences. Right, they knew there was other stuff. They dubbed him things like the Lonely Hearts Killer, the Glamour Girl Slayer. <gasps> I some hate of his Glamour murders. Girl Slayer. I think he did three. He had three known victims. Um, that that um, qualified him as a serial killer. Anyway, he was released in 1951. He came back to his parents' home, got a job in a TV repair shop, and he began pretending to be a photographer or set himself up as a photographer and started hiring models and asking them to pose for him. Oh, no. So that was what he was up to. This is all around the same time that Boulder Jane Doe was found. In 1957, he moved to California a year later, he was arrested when one young woman he had hired to pose for him tried to flee from his car and his gun went off. After he was arrested, police found a toolbox full of photos of women all tied and gagged and tied up and gagged. Uh, some of them had their clothes on, some not. Most of the photos had been taken by Glattman. So this mm, is his when whole he was thing the that he did. Yeah. Yep. He admitted to strangling three of the women in the photographs Um, He led police to their bodies. It was almost as though he wanted to brag about what he'd done. They noted, the police, that he recalled each of his victims, their names, their hometowns. There was one 
woman in photographs. They asked him who she was and he said, I didn't mark her name down and never saw her again. Those particular photos have did been lost. Did your phone lost. just go off? Yes, it did. Now, just a second. Okay. I'm dead. It's sitting on the desk. I'm not touching it. And she's writing down what I'm saying. Clapman. So I'm just going to add a line in here. There's a lot more phoneage going on, but we've edited it out because it's been so much phone going off. <laughs> Please, let me continue. Um, okay. So the police asked him whether all the women in the photos were alive. He said, yes, unless they've been run over. Now, Steve Ainsworth was the Boulder County Sheriff's Detective who investigated this as a cold case many years later, and he thinks that being run over is how Jane Doe died. He says the theory is she was hit by a car while running away from him. Oh, that's terrifying, isn't it, being chased by a car? That's terrifying. It's horrible. Yeah. He even tracked down a 1951 Dodge Coronet, like the one that Glattman bought in Denver and was driving when he was arrested, and calculated where that car would have hit the Jane Doe body and the locations matched her injuries. So that's likely how she died. So around the same time as the Boulder Jane Doe body was found, A woman named Dorothy Gay Howard had disappeared. Now, she was the oldest of three sisters. Her younger sister says she was very strong-willed. She'd married her first husband at the age of 16. He was 19 in the Air Force. And then she got divorced and she remarried before she was even 18 to a much older man who she probably met working at the movie theatre. And um, her family didn't know about that second marriage until after she'd vanished. And they read a legal notice in the newspaper saying that her first husband had divorced her. So when she disappeared, Dorothy was working as a live-in nanny on the Mm. other side of town. And they reported her missing when she didn't show up to take one of her sisters to the movies. She had run away from home once before. So the family thought that she maybe just didn't want to see them again, that she'd run away. Uh, The younger sister says, I waited and waited. So finally, my mother let me go to the neighbours to call her. I called where she was babysitting and they said she doesn't work here anymore. So they never saw her again. In the 1990s, so fast forward all these years later, an historian by the name of Sylvia Petham became interested in the case. She visited the ceremony uh, the cemetery and saw the... um, the headstone. She wrote a book, if you are interested, called Someone's Daughter in Search of Justice for Jane Doe. And this story has a link to Australia. In 2009, the Boulder Jane Doe case had been reopened and the body was exhumed. Forensic experts thought that she was a woman by the name of Catherine Farrand Dyer, who had also gone missing in the area shortly before Jane Doe's body was found, and Catherine Dyer had lived near Harvey Glapman. So the author, Sylvia Petham, tracked down Catherine's brother and sister in Virginia in the US, and they confirmed that they hadn't heard from her since the Boulder Jane Doe case. So it does match up. sound out like it might be her. But in Queensland, two women had been caring for an, a much older woman who they knew by the name Barbara Jones. And as they were preparing to move her into a rest home, they found something rather interesting among her her, um, her papers and things. They found an address book and in it there were divorce papers belonging to somebody called Catherine Farrand Dyer. Oh. So it turned out that this woman in Queensland who had been living under the name Barbara Jones was in fact this Catherine Farrand Dyer who had run away or left Denver way back in 1957. 
come for here and start reasons, a new life. Probably because of the divorce. Yeah, she moved to California, then Hawaii. In 1963, she'd moved to Australia and lived the rest of her life there as Barbara Jones. So they had to rule out Catherine yeah. Farron Dyer as being Boulder Jane Doe. They were effectively back to, to um, square one. So who was Jane Doe? Enter the marvel of DNA in this modern age. And a young woman by the name of Michelle Fowler, who was driven to search for her great aunt Dorothy Gay Howard, who we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who'd gone to the pictures and never came back. That was this young, uh, young woman, Michelle's uh, great aunt. Uh, Michelle searched the phone book. She called all the Dorothy Howards and they would say, no, you know, I'm not her. Then she came across an article about Boulder Jane Doe and she contacted the officer in charge of the cold case, Steve Ainsworth, and the author, Sylvia Petham. She gave a DNA sample and it was established that she and Jane Jane Doe were related. So that means that Jane Doe was, in fact, they were able to give her a name. Her name was Dorothy Gay Howard, the sister that had gone missing all those years ago. Uh, Harvey Glattman, by the way, was executed at San Quentin State Prison in California in 1959 by gas chamber. So we may never know the truth, whether the woman in the Mm. photograph and whether it was him that killed her. We still don't know who killed her. Speaking about dead bodies and just off the back of that, I would really love to hear some feedback if people think that murderers should be executed does it depend on the crime and the way yeah. they're killed? Well, I just I think some people have that whole eye for an eye sort of situation and other people are like, why should we keep them alive on taxpayer dollars? I've just thought of it off the cuff of that, that it's an interesting my topic thinking, and I would like to know what people think about my that. My thinking is that there is a margin for error and I yeah, would rather keep alive mm. at great expense a hundred what if there's no doubt? People. There's no doubt. Person admits to it. Yeah, but sometimes people confess to crimes that they haven't and it's on actually committed. And you can see them do it. Yeah. There would need to be so many it's boxes colour, checked. And you can hear it. And as they're stabbing them, they say, I am John Smith and I am killing Jane Smith. Then? Then, okay. No, oh. I still can't. No, I can't. Can, no, I still mm. couldn't. I'd rather I think it's they. Very interesting. I would rather they live out their days thinking about what they've done every yep. single day. Yeah, I was thinking that too, and just the frustration of being in a jail cell. Yeah, I just don't think I can ever. Death is kind of a cop see out. See someone's that sense, right? death. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I don't ever want to be the one that says. Okay, someone well, has don't to die. bother sending us your feedback. We've really brainstormed that one <laughs> no, ourselves. Please do. So please do. So we don't know who killed Boulder Jane Doe, but the best theory is she was killed by Harvey Glattman, and I reckon, yeah, I it so feels too. like that. Yeah, they'll never know. They'll never be able to prove it. <sighs> Lots of interesting things. Chanel's photos of the faces in death. We'll put the links for that onto our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And we would love you to go on iTunes if you do. Um, give us a rating. That really helps us. And if you subscribe, it also is great and you know it's free. So why not? If you think we're a one star, don't put it on iTunes. Just send us an email and say that it's shit and it's a one star. Don't put it on iTunes. <laughs> Why? Yeah, because you're not looking at the emails. You're making me look at them. <laughs> Shana, we have a special Dead Bodies podcast guest with us today and a mighty one too. Dr. Brian Williams has written a book about an Australian murderess, we'll call her. It's such an old-fashioned term to it's put a good S title on though, murderess. Lady authoress, they say. No. I hope that's what people call me behind my back. She's a... 
lady murderess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she is a murderer and probably one of the worst this country has seen. And yet many people had not heard about her. Her name is Martha Needle. And our guest this evening, the author of the book, Martha Needle, Dr. Brian Williams. Hello. Yes, hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you. Tell us about Martha Needle. Who was she and what did she do? Yeah, well, um, Martha was a, a fascinating character in many ways and quite a, a dastardly one. Um, we're talking about a very manipulative sort of a person. She did, in fact, murder at least four people that we know of. That was, we know of. That, that we, we know, know of. of. That's the key point. She was convicted of only one of those murders. That was for murdering her brother-in-law. She had also stood by and watched her whole family be buried a few years before that, her husband and three of her children. When After, did this happen, by the uh, way? This all happened in, in the 1890s, okay. um, and she was finally caught in 1894 when she tried to poison another brother-in-law. It didn't take much to get on Martha's bad side, you'll probably notice, um, and he annoyed her, so she filled him up with a, a substance called rough-on-rats, which was an easily obtained poison from a chemist, um, but it was, of course, full of arsenic. Now, he, he managed to go to a different doctor to the other people, and that doctor suspected poisoning. Um, he then uh, had the vomit um, of the victim um, analysed, found arsenic. So they set a trap for Martha Needle. They went to uh, her house at the same time she was um, feeding this person lunch, grabbed the cup of tea and found that it had five times enough arsenic to kill him in it. They then, if you like, got into a reverse engineering and they started to think about her other relatives who had died. Now, one of them had been her brother-in-law five we- her other brother-in-law five weeks earlier. He'd been buried in South Australia. The interesting thing about this book is it tells you a lot about the way the medical world worked in those days, which wasn't as good as now. Mm. It tells you a lot about the science world and, and autopsies and, and uh, even uh, Chanel, even the way they investigated uh, reporters and... Uh, it was all a little bit different. Now, a decision was made to exhume his body in South Australia, and I can talk a little bit about that if you like. It was quite a ghastly process. He'd been buried five weeks. Um, I would love you to talk about that. Yeah, Please well, <laughs> um, and this gets into the different way of having to identify things. This is in a pre-DNA era. So, of course, um, not even fingerprints were available to them at that time. So detectives relied very heavily on witness evidence. So they had to firstly confirm that it was actually Lewis Junkin, who was the brother-in-law who'd been murdered, Mm. was buried in South Australia. So the way they do that is um, they get the the grave uh, digger to say, yes, I buried that person there. They get the uh, funeral director to say, yes, I buried that person in that coffin. And then the, the corpse had to be identified by three or four people. Uh, one of the those corpse pe- had to be identified. Yes, yeah. Five weeks in. Yeah, now, Ooh. one of those people was going to be his, his elderly mother, but she was given the day off eventually and she went home. But yeah. um, one of them was his brother, um, his brother-in-law, a couple of other people. Now, he'd been buried five weeks, so naturally enough decomposition. He's starting to turn pretty black by now. The coffin, you've probably heard on some of your other podcasts, that it was a coffin that had a glass plate mm-hmm. put in it so yeah. his mother could see him one last time. Yeah. It had mould on it, so they had to brush that off. And they looked in, it looked like him. Um, his his moustache had grown since he died. Oh. Um, 
I've heard about that happening. Yeah. That your yeah. hair and your nails still grow. It's not. It's that the the it, the, body, the the tissues shrink, shrink and so it makes appears. It look as oh yeah. right. I suspect that was the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they managed to identify him, but the main thing, then they had to do an autopsy at the cemetery. Now, this is where another interesting person enters the story. The, the Did they know what they were looking for? Yeah, they had a fair idea. They were looking for arsenic, mm-hmm. and they were looking for a couple of things. They were looking for signs of arsenic ingestion in the organs, which so what, would, what would, that would be reddened intestines and mm. in, inflamed intestines and mm. things like that. Right. But the main thing they did is they cut up the body and put, Pieces of it in jars, so the That's heart went in one. Necessary. What did lung they... went one? Oh. Went in one jar. Bits and pieces. Now you got to remember, all the organs are starting to mush oh. together a bit. And then they brought the jars back to Melbourne on the train that night. Yep. They were then picked up at the railway station by the coroner, who uh, the uh, analyst, who then took the the jars off and analysed each of those. And all but one jar had arsenic in it. So so there was still mm. a lot of arsenic in his system. Right. So that didn't look good now because her three little daughters had died and her husband had died. Her husband, who she didn't really like, um, she'd had a terrible marriage and a terrible life. And he died, but he died a fair while ago. He died in 1889, so this was five years ago. But what about the kids? I mean, Yeah, well, she, her first daughter died in 1895 when she was three. Then the husband died. She'd insured his life for 200 pounds, which was a lot of money. <laughs> Um, and he died a withering death with a whole lot of vague symptoms. Um, so then he was buried at Burundara Cemetery. Then within two years, his other two daughters, um, his six-year-old daughter and his four-year-old daughter, died uh, with similar type symptoms. And they're all buried in the same plot, which is B2477, which is in Burundara Cemetery. The decision was made then, well, what we'll do is we'll exhume these bodies as well. The other daughter, the one had been buried earlier, she seemed to have very similar symptoms to the others. I found out later she'd been buried in what was known as a mass grave at that time, so a lot of children would die and the, the little kids who were still born and whatever would all go into one grave. So mm. that may have made them wary of being able to identify which corpse they were dealing with, which mm. set of um, remains they were dealing with. But the others were buried on top of each other and they went through the same process, so the... Um, the grave diggers confirmed they'd, they'd only ever put three bodies there. They, they were using the same um, funeral director who must have been starting to think this is a really good business list. Yeah. He's, <laughs> one after the next. And he even offered her a discount on the last funeral. Oh. Um, but she didn't take it because she'd had enough insurance money to pay for the, yeah. the whole lot. What's Sorry. the body count? Well, that's four. But um, that's actually five if we include the f- first order. Then they do the same thing with those three bodies so they get them out of the ground this is by now attracted a football like crowd it's like mm. St Kilda and Collingwood Burundara Cemetery they did it first thing in the morning and it was all foggy and you can imagine it was like a scene out of an old movie um, in South Australia they'd actually cut the body up in front of everybody oh my. Um, in a tent this time they they decided that the, it's like an episode of MASH is <laughs> They had been in the ground so long that they took a look at the bodies, but I, I think they decided they'd be better taken to the morgue, which is wasn't much better anyway. I now, would go to see a body exhumed. I also think in the open air type situation, it's probably better because it wouldn't be smelling great. That's exactly that right. Point. Well, the, the one in Adelaide was um, certainly from the reports at the time. It just about bombed out Adelaide with the smell when they opened mm. up the coffin. But what I'm wondering is, so you mentioned the insurance. Yes. 
surely there are more efficient ways, if she's doing it for the money, there are more efficient ways to kill people. I mean, what is a death by arsenic, arsenic poisoning like? I imagine that takes some time. Yes, it does. It's Why just... wouldn't she... F- Smother well, the, the children or something. Well, that's a, a good question, but it gets into her personality a lot, I believe. Um, she was drip-feeding these people amounts of arsenic and controlling the process. They were having slow, lingering deaths. Throughout all of that, she was getting enormous attention in the community for her wonderful nursing skills, looking after these little oh. babies. And then when they died, she really laid it on. She's a great actress and on the grave she spent a lot of the um, insurance money on big memorials where she put poems about the children, about her loss and all of those things. So she was getting a lot of attention in the community as well. Rough on rats, once again, this is an era when um, poisons were very easy to gain, not just um, arsenic but um, also cyanide could be bought over the counter at a chemist as well. And there were quite a lot of um, cyanide deaths at that time as well. So those three bodies they exhumed from Burundara Cemetery in Kew, they all had arsenic in them as well. And I suppose that way, so if you stab someone to death, then the police come in and you stab someone to death and yep. you're the murderer. Mm. This way, as you said, she's the caring mother and no one really knows. Everyone yes. just thinks mm. she's so unfortunate that all her loved ones are getting sick and dying. She, so how then, if she, you know, people are thinking, oh, this poor woman and exactly, there's yeah. palms on the tombstones and all yeah. of that, how was she caught? She was caught because that when she did the, f- the last brother-in-law, he'd gone to a different doctor. Martha Needle was very manipulative and very seductive, particularly... She was attractive, wasn't she? She had male doctors around her finger, yeah, pretty mm, much. Yeah. And the death certificate, she seemed to be able to get them to write whatever she wanted them to write with oh, her we children. Have the actual—that's the original um, old document, right? Well, that is, yeah. Page. That's her second daughter, Elsie Needle, up the top. Elsie Needle, 9th of December, eighteen ninety, Cubitt Street, in the city of Richmond. Oh, okay. Yes, it's still there. Sex and age, female, six years. Cause of death: gangrenous stomatitis. Stomatitis, yeah. And exhaustion. It's in the book, but the main thing is is that all of the diagnosis that they put together on all of these victims, they, they've come up with some wonderfully exotic illnesses, none of which were the things that killed them. Um, they all had arsenic poisoning symptoms that should have been picked up, really. But the last one with that brother-in-law, he went to a different doctor who'd never met Martha Needle. She wasn't in a position to influence him. And that's when the suspicion came about and that's when they tested the vomit and that's when they found the arsenic. And as I said, then they got into reverse engineering and going back and digging up people that she knew. The other disturbing thing about Martha is that once the game was up, uh, she did say to detectives that I've known quite a lot of other people who have died recently. I'll give you their details if you want to dig them up. Uh, So she wanted, it's almost like she wanted credit. Yeah. For what she done, she wanted them to know what and she Oh, wow. She, she said she was a man-eater. After her husband died, she was engaged to somebody else. She had a falling out with him, and he suddenly fell very ill at the age of 28. Similar symptoms to the brother-in-law who would, who died later. Gosh, Martha's uh, had some bad I luck know. with it. And then she did have some bad luck because then he died, and she tried to distance herself from him very much in court. His grave is actually 15 metres away from the family grave that she visited every weekend. Oh. So. uh, She's wallowing in it. I've just looked up the symptoms for arsenic poisoning, and it's vomiting, abdominal pain, watery diarrhoea, long-term is thickened skin, darker skin, and cancer. And this is why we never use Wikipedia as journalists. It says the treatment, uh, the prevention of arsenic poisoning is drinking water without arsenic in it. 
great. That'll help. <laughs> that would oh, help. Um, can I also say I've become quite distracted by this page of deaths you've handed me because of the five people listed on it, one is Elsie Needle, there's a little girl two months old yes, who, dri- who died of cerebral irritation. What yeah, would that be? Well, and convulsions. That's, that's interesting uh, because that's the same one they put on um, her other daughter, I guess what we're getting to is that uh, the doctors were a little bit rough and ready in those mm, days. They and, were. And autopsies were quite rare. If you could get a doctor's certificate, that was pretty much the end of the matter. The funeral director would grab the doctor's certificate and would bury the corpse very quickly. I wonder how many other people, how many other wives got rid of husbands they didn't like and, and things at that particular time. It seemed to be quite an easy thing to do. Well, I've said this before. You cannot murder someone in 2018, but back then... <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You could you had a pretty good chance of getting away with it. Now, why? Why was she killing everyone yeah, that well, she the, loved? That is the golden question, and I think we need to look at Martha's personality a little bit here. Obviously, greed had a lot to do with it. She she came from a very poor background, but she loved glamour. She loved dressing up. She also ensured the lives of her children, two of her children, not for very much, but enough to when her husband died, she thought she was going to get all of the two hundred pounds. As it turned out, her two children were considered to be dependents, and so she was only up for a third of it, unless something happened to the two children. Then she'd get all of it. Um, that wasn't very good news for them, I wouldn't suggest. Um, the other problem with her is there was a big question about her sanity. She did have fainting fits. She'd come from a horrible childhood herself, including being raped as a child. Mm. Um, she got stuck in this marriage. Domestic violence entered the situation. Um, but hang on, the, the, yeah. to carry out this this number of murders yeah. in the way she did, that's, that takes a degree of uh, And the last thing cunning, I was going to say is rat tender. cunning and a bit of evil yeah. thrown in for good bad so measure. So is, that, in, is uh, that an insane person? Uh, well, the, th- the problem with insanity with Martha Needle is that the test is still the same. Chanel would know this better than anyone, that you need to be able to show that the person was unable to determine the difference between right and wrong mm. and whatever. This was a deliberate crime committed over many, many, many years. Oh. Um, we mentioned about poisoning before. You need to be quite cunning and take a lot of time and planning to do it. Yeah. And then the, the last thing is, of course, she, she went out of her way not to get caught, which gives a bit of an indication she was aware that mm. what she was doing was very wrong. Yeah. And I, I tried to, given her, her terrible background, I did try to find some, some good in her. I didn't have much luck. I think many people could reconcile that she got rid of her husband um, and brother-in-law she didn't like, but the children really seems to have cut up this story a lot, that mm-hmm. you know people just cannot understand how that occurred. No. So was she found guilty of how many of them? Only one. Only and one. and oh. that's probably where my passion came in because to me it was a terrible injustice to the, the victims involved that they were never recorded as murder victims. They were just buried again after the autopsies. And um, the politics of the matter was that this happened in the 1890s in the middle of a severe economic depression. Um, politicians were, and in those days, they believed that criminal tendencies were hereditary. She lived in Richmond, which was then quite a slum area. Mm. This is a male-dominated system. The justice system, all-male judges, all-male juries, all-male reporters. Mm. Sorry, Charnel. It's fine. Um, all-male all <laughs> radio or whatever. No, I wouldn't add radio then, but no. newspaper reporters, all-male. <laughs> I was um, a journalist for many years. Uh, yeah, uh, all all of the um, <laughs> lawyers, male, all of those. So she f- and all the politicians who then had to decide. She was, you know, sentenced to death, but... Would that actually happen? 
normally with women they would decide to to not go on with the execution there was a feeling that that wasn't a um a good thing to do to somebody in her case um she had no hope the politicians just said absolutely she'd be executed how and how did they do it hanging which is um at old melbourne jail now if this was a case today it would run for so many years it's not funny she's arrested in june she had two trials. A Supreme Court trial finished in September. She's executed about three uh, three weeks later. Wow! So there's that's, no room for error, was there? That's you know, oh, so we got quick. One person, or no, yeah. she didn't do it. Um, so the speed had a lot to do with the political need to make a lesson of her, but also to tell the people who are living in Richmond that you know we know you're starving, but don't try anything. Um, yeah. it, it, there was a big big issue with that. And look, in terms of bodies, it it. Um, it talks about its execution a lot, which um, it was then called the art of execution. About 187 people in, in, in Victoria were executed by hanging and the hangman would deal with a, a mathematical formula that he used incredible mathematical rigour. There still is the, the executioner book available that's got a, a, a page on every execution. I've got the page of, of Martha over there in which um, he outlines how it went about and whether or not it was successful, mm. whatever that means. Um, I'm assuming that she ended up dead. Yeah, but also that the execution was instantaneous. Oh, now, I see. So what he would do is he... In, and in the front of that book is, a, is an old copper plate chart that's written in copper plate writing. Um, tells you how to hang someone. Uh, so you, you, you weigh them, then you figure out the length of rope and the drop and you need to go down the chart and figure everything out so that you can snap their neck, neck. instantly. I was about to say, it's got to do with snapping the neck. Yeah. Instead of them actually suffocating, yeah. it's breaking your neck. Break the neck okay. instantly. Now, in Martha's case, um, it is probably a bit gory, but they allowed um, her to wear a dress um, to be executed in. And the final indignity would have been if the dress went up over her head as she was executed. So they put some lead in the bottom of the dress so that the dress wouldn't rise up. And the hangman, I noticed, even added the weight of the lead in his calculations on Martha Needle. It's on wow. the page. And in her case, it wasn't uh, considered a successful execution, whatever on earth that means. Some of them weren't. Um, in some cases, they messed it up terribly. Um, there was decapitations. There were people left dangling there for 25 minutes, struggling. Mm. Oh, can you imagine? I suppose people oh. gathered... To watch it, didn't they? Um, well, yeah, but they had jail visitors in her case. Um, and what there. then happened to her body? Yeah, well, that was the same pretty much as everyone else. In in her fantasies, and I've uncovered all of her letters, and she's terribly manipulative, even on the last day of her life. Um, she's executed at 10 o'clock. She's up in the morning, 6 o'clock, writing letters to everyone about how you're going to really miss me. And, all. Oh. and her, her great plan was that she would be buried with her babies at Kew Cemetery which seemed a bit odd to me considering she actually killed them and she put up memorials there. But that was her her fantasy that, you know, you'll all come and visit me when I'm buried with my little babies. No, that didn't happen at all. No, what would happen when someone was executed is, first of all, they, they're left dangling there for an hour. That mm. was the regulation. Then they would be cut down. Then they would do a quick autopsy and just check that they did die from a broken neck and that was always listed on the coroner's report as judicial hanging. Then they would take a plaster cast of her head, which is what they did, and that, that's still in the old Melbourne jail today. Why did they do that? <laughs> yeah, the reason they did that is because, uh, I mentioned before, they thought that crime was genetic. There was also a science um, 
where phrenology, where they believe that by looking at the facial structure and the bumps on the head that they could predict whether a person was likely to be a criminal. It wasn't true, of course, but they believed it. And so they, they've got all the plaster casts of those people with the idea that oh, we'll study this later. And I don't know if you've got, you know, shifty eyes or you've got a thin nose or something. It's um, funny because sometimes I think when people get charged with murder, yeah, they've got a murderer's name. Like I think that sometimes. Their name. Yeah, sometimes. That's very scientific. They do <laughs> talk about a murderer's head in some of the old things. And then, then, then her body was, um, as I said, it didn't go to Kew Cemetery with her babies. It was buried very roughly in the jail grounds, which is where Old Melbourne Jail is now. But it didn't even rest in peace because in 1924, Old Melbourne Jail was had been decommissioned and the jail moved out to Pentridge in Coburg. Um, they were doing some works out there with, a, with tractors and whatever to build um, Emily McPherson College. And the tractor crashed into a wall or something and all the the um, all of the coffins all rolled out and oh. bones all rolled out on the ground and you know they'd actually un they hit the old cemetery there. Bones went everywhere. There was some children school Sorry, children. Brian. Kirsten, our producer, um, has received some criticism but also some praise for her use of sound effects in our podcast. Oh, good. Yeah. And I just saw her jotting down a little note there. Yeah, Go yeah, to well, town, it, Kirsten. It, it, it must have been a fascinating sight because there were some school children Oh. nearby eating their lunch. This was the greatest thing in 1924 that could happen to a school kid. They all ran over. They souvenired bones and a couple of them oh. stole skulls. Someone someone else ran over and stole a couple of skulls. They thought Ned Kelly's skull was amongst them because it came out of a, a, a casket with EK written on it, you know, but there was another person called Ernest Knox who'd been executed as well. Martha's skull was knocked off in that heist, but later on it was found and um, it ended up in the National Trust yeah. Now the national, my understanding of national trust, I've had a bit to do with them because of Old Melbourne Jail. National Trust kept it in their collection for a while. They have a lot of volunteers who sort through um, collections. It's probably not the nicest thing to find in a collection. <laughs> so it ended up at Melbourne University. I think it's in it's stored in the dental school. When all of those bones and everything was on earth, they, they all ended up being collected in sacks and they were buried in a mass grave out at Coburg. Wow, so Pentridge. she's in bits. So she's in bits, yeah. Wow. Um, well, absolutely fascinating. The book is Martha Needle, so we'll share a, a bit of it, some of the photos on our Facebook page, but um, really, if you want to learn more, I suggest you grab a copy of the book. The author is Dr Brian Williams. We are delighted that you've joined us on oh, Dead Bodies thank Podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Yep, no, thank you very much. Fascinating. Very happy to talk about the story. Thank you. On the next episode of Dead Bodies. The moment that I couldn't shake was when he first opened up the stitches where they do the Y incision along their chest oh, and down their yes. stomach. Oh, yes. I know the one. And yeah. it was the smell. The smell was horrendous. And it was because he'd been in a coma for so long, all the medication that had been in his body was just like he was rotten inside. The smell was absolutely horrendous. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vella and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.